Hi, listeners. Before we get going today, I want to let you know about this special 4th of July thing that we're doing and that you can help with. As you know, we're totally donation-supported, and so for the 4th of July, we got some friends to help us with a donation appeal video. Ambassador and former Senator Carol Mosley Braun, Secretary Leon Panetta, Google's Vint Cerf, and General Barry McCaffrey are all in this 20-second video which we posted on our Facebook page. And here's how you can help. We're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial, so go to facebook.com slash WW1 Centennial. The video is the first post, and share the video with your friends and let them know that we need their help to build America's World War I memorial in Washington, D.C. Each time it's shared, we get a few more donations, so if you can, please make a small gift to our World War I doughboys, and even if you can't, please share the video on your social media. It's really about our remembering the war that changed the world. Here we go with episode number 26. World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I news 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I news now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. Today is June 28, 2017, and I'm Teo Mayer, Chief Technologist for the World War I Centennial Commission and your host. Looking back at World War I 100 years ago this week, we're going to follow just one of the many amazing stories. This week, we're following the story of the Red Cross. The American Red Cross, or ARC, was founded by Clara Barton in May of 1881, earning a historic role for serving people in need. When Europe was thrown into conflict in June of 1914, the American Red Cross was a small organization still in the process of developing its identity and its programs. In large part, the American Red Cross we know today was forged by the war that changed the world, when the organization suddenly found itself deeply embroiled in the incredible upheaval, growth, and expansion that was America's war effort in 1917. The transformation began as we declared war in April of 2017. And at that crucial time, Red Cross headquarters was reeling under the sudden projected demands on it. So in May of 2017, President Woodrow Wilson appointed Henry P. Davidson, a successful New York banker, to head a war council. The war council was to direct the Red Cross. Yeah, it looks pretty much like a U.S. war effort takeover. By the end of June, 100 years ago this week, having just knocked it out of the park with the Liberty Bond Drive, the U.S. government turned its sights on successfully wrapping up a $100 million fund drive from private donations on behalf of the Red Cross. So think about it. That's over $2 billion in 2017 being raised for a private organization with the direct support of the U.S. federal government. Here's what it looked like 100 years ago this week in the pages of the official bulletin, the Government War Gazette, headed by George Creel, America's propaganda chief for President Woodrow Wilson. Dateline, June 25, 1917. Headline, 
believe the $100 million Red Cross fund will be raised. The Red Cross issues the following. A thousand American cities are striving today to boost the big Red Cross war fund to an even $100 million. With returns well over the three-quarter mark this afternoon, the War Council officers are confident that by the close of the day, the Red Cross War Fund will be in hand. On the same day. Headline. War is but beginning, Lord Northcliffe says in outlining task of the Red Cross. The story reads... Lord Northcliffe of the British War Mission, who has been to the front and has seen at close quarters the actual part that the British Red Cross is playing in the gigantic world struggle, has given out the following statement. If, as one of the leaders of the British Red Cross, I have a message of any kind to the American Red Cross, it is one of congratulations on the devotion and enthusiasm for the Red Cross work I find sweeping this vast continent. He goes on to state... The Red Cross must take up the burden of seeing us through and alleviating the horrors a ruthless foe has added to the usual suffering of war. The next day, the drumbeat continues. Tuesday, June 26, 1917. Headline. $100 million Red Cross war fund is oversubscribed. The story reads, The Red Cross today issued the following statement. The Red Cross War Fund of $100 million has been raised. The even sum was passed sometime during the night. Today's returns continue to boost the sum by the millions. Before noon, the grand total was $104 million, with a prospect that $105 million would be marked up on the big headquarters blackboard before night. Then, one day later on Wednesday... Dateline, Wednesday, June 27, 1917. Headline, Millions Still Being Raised to the Red Cross War Fund. The Red Cross today issued the following statement. How much over $100 million the war fund of the American Red Cross will go is purely a matter of conjecture. Taking into consideration all overlapping of subscriptions that may occur, the fund should be at least 15 or $20 million over the goal by July 1st. The campaign officially terminated on Monday night, but hundreds of cities throughout the nation have volunteered to go right on with collecting funds for the Red Cross. And on the same Wednesday... Dateline, Wednesday, June 27, 1917. Headline... Red Cross War Council announces plans for dealing with problem of sanitation. The Red Cross today issued the following statement. Broad plans for dealing with the problem of sanitation and public health arising out of the war condition abroad and in the United States were announced today by the War Council of the American Red Cross. To provide expert advice for the Council in dealing with these problems, the War Council also announced the appointment of a Medical Advisory Committee, composed of leading sanitarians and public health authorities of the country. And then, on Thursday, the U.S. State Department oversteps its bounds and the Red Cross pushes back very politely. Dateline, Thursday, June 28, 1917. Headline. Red Cross seeks change in base hospital ruling. On June 20th, the American Red Cross Director General of the Department of Military Relief forwarded to the directors of all Red Cross base hospitals a copy of a letter received from the State Department, 
to the effect that hospital units intended for service abroad should not include persons of German, Austro-Hungarian, Bulgarian, or Turkish nationality or birth, or American citizens whose fathers were born in Germany, Austro-Hungaria, or allied countries. The Red Cross goes on to explain that this type of policy may work in a country with very few people of foreign birth, but in America, an immigrant nation, they say, quote, such unfair discrimination against some of our most patriotic and respected citizens is inappropriate. Finally, on Friday, the most interesting and intriguing Red Cross article of all. Dateline, Friday, June 29, 1917. Headline, Military Titles, Rank, and Uniform Will Be Used by Red Cross Agents in War Theater. The headline continues with, War Department will commission representatives of the organization to facilitate their work in service of humanity. Appropriate insignias will be provided. What a great topper for a week of stories about the Red Cross. Let's summarize. First, the U.S. government creates a war council appoints their man, Henry P. Davidson, and effectively puts him in charge of the Red Cross through this War Council. Then, the U.S. government puts its imprint, endorsement, and propaganda machine on a major multi-billion dollar, in today's terms, fundraising campaign to fund a private humanitarian organization generally managed by it. Meanwhile, the U.K. government sends over their equivalent of Henry P. Davidson over to the U.S. to make major support speeches on behalf of the Red Cross. The next day, the official fund drive is ended, but hundreds of local communities and cities just keep on raising money, way more than the original goal. Then on the following day, the Red Cross starts making announcements about what they're going to do for America and how they plan on doing it. And on that same day, the Red Cross pushes back on a U.S. State Department ruling that basically bans all Red Cross volunteers of German, Austro-Hungarian, Turkish, or Bulgarian descent. Hey, these are loyal immigrants and second-generation Americans. Uh, what are you thinking? They reply in very polite terms. All this is capped off by the end of the week with an article that explains that military titles, ranks, and U.S. uniforms will be used by the Red Cross in the war theater. The role and relationship of the Red Cross and the U.S. government and the interplay between the two during this dynamic time in history is a story that I find personally amazing, and yet another great example of the echoes we still see today from the war that changed the world. Now we're joined by Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator of the Great War Project blog. Mike's post this week looks at the war dissidents in Europe, including a great insight into World War I literary figure Siegfried Sassoon. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Teo. So here are the headlines from a century ago. Anti-war resistance in the East and the West. Bolsheviks gain strength in Russia. A poet speaks out in Britain. And this is special to the Great War Project. In Russia, on the Eastern Front, the summer of 1917 was a chaotic one, reports historian Adam Hochschild. Russian troops were killing their officers or replacing them with Soviets, and by the hundreds of thousands, they kept on leaving the front. History had never before seen an army dissolve on such a scale. Political chaos reigned in Petrograd, Russia's capital, reports Hochschild. The provisional government tried to corral the Bolsheviks and other radical sects into continuing the war. 
But in Petrograd, soldiers were marching against the war, shouting down with capitalism and stop the war. By then, Hochschild writes, a Bolshevik takeover was on the way. Anti-war activists in London tried to bring that spirit to Britain, hoping to spark a similar outbreak of sentiment against the war. Activist Sylvia Pankhurst, who ran a radical newspaper in London, published appeals urging soldiers to lay down their arms. She published critical letters from soldiers at the front, reports Hochschild. Her newspaper was the first to publish a statement unlike any the war had yet seen. An eloquent avowal from a frontline officer and a highly decorated one at that, declaring his intention to stop fighting. Writes Second Lieutenant Siegfried Sassoon, I am making this statement as an act of willful defiance of military authority because I believe that the war is being deliberately prolonged by those who have the power to end it. I believe that this war, upon which I entered as a war of defense, has now become a war of aggression and conquest. Sassoon was a much decorated soldier. He carried a wounded man to safety under heavy fire. He had already published a noteworthy book of anti-war poetry. He came also from an eminent family in Britain with a cousin who was a member of parliament. Sassoon was sent back to England after being shot in the throat. Sylvia Pankhurst's newspaper, Workers Dreadnought, published Sassoon's statement, but government agents raided her offices and seized 100 copies of the letter. Sassoon expected a court-martial, which would give him and others the opportunity to denounce the war in front of a much larger audience. They would wait in vain, for the last thing the government wanted was an upper-class war hero turned public martyr. A breach of discipline has been committed, said a war office spokesman about Sassoon's defiant open letter. But no disciplinary action has been taken since Second Lieutenant Sassoon has been reported by the medical board as not being responsible for his action, as he was suffering from nervous breakdown, according to the war office. Far from being thrown in jail, reports Hochschild, Sassoon was ordered to wait in a hotel room in Liverpool. He threw his military cross into the River Mercy, but no one was there to see this gesture, and it went unreported. Sassoon was then sent off to the comfortable surroundings of a rehabilitation hospital for shell-shocked officers in Scotland. And that's some of the stories from the Great War Project a century ago. Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. And if you're into learning about World War I by watching videos, go visit our friends at the Great War Channel on YouTube. World War I, 100 years ago this week, from a more European perspective. Hello, World War I Centennial News listeners. I'm Indy Nidell, host of the Great War YouTube channel. As summer begins in 1917, the intensity of the fighting increases across the globe as the war enters its third year and the first American troops finally arrive over here. This week's new episodes cover a variety of subjects, including Hero or Burden, King Constantine of Greece, and then a hardware piece about Greek rifles and pistols of World War I. A really interesting one, the disillusionment of Lawrence of Arabia. And Spain and the Spanish arms industry in World War I. The link is in the podcast notes or search The Great War on YouTube. This week in our Great War in the Sky segment, we're going to tell you the story of Lewis Bennett from West Virginia. The story comes from a letter received by his mother, Sally Bennett four years after Lewis's death in the skies over the Western Front. A letter written by a German officer named Emil Merkelbach, who fought against Lewis at that fateful last battle that ended his life. 
Lewis Bennett was a Yale-educated young man with big ambitions for his role in the war. He organized the West Virginia Flying Club in early 1917 with the idea of training pilots to join the U.S. Army as a part of a proposed West Virginia aerial unit. But the War Department rejected the idea and required that Lewis go through the standard Army training program, something he was not at all interested in. So he joined the British Royal Air Force, the best way that he saw to get to the action as quick as possible. Lewis only served for 10 days before being shot down. But in those 10 days, he fearlessly downed three enemy planes and nine balloons. This earned him the distinction of being designated a flying ace, becoming West Virginia's only World War I ace. And here is Merkelbach's account of Lewis Bennett's final battle from the letter he sent to Lewis's mother, Sally. Although it's a little bit long, we're including the entire passage. I had an opportunity to admire the keenness and bravery of your son. For this reason, I should like to give you the following short description of his final battle. I had been up in my balloon for several hours, observing, and was at a height of 1,000 meters. Over the enemy's front circled, continuously, two hostile airplanes. I immediately gave the command to my men below to haul in my balloon, as I saw another German balloon plunge to earth burning. At that same moment, I saw the hostile flyer, your son Lewis, come towards my balloon at terrific speed, and immediately the defensive fire of my heavy machine gun rifles below and of the anti-aircraft guns began. But the hostile aviator did not concern himself about that. He opened fire on me. The hostile machine was shot into flames by the fire of my machine guns. The enemy aviator, your son, tried to spring from the airplane before the latter plunged to the ground and burned completely. A bold and brave officer had met his death. I hope that the foregoing lines, a memorial to your son, will be received by you living. He was my bravest enemy. I honor his memory with respect, Emil Merkelbach. Lewis Bennett Jr.'s courage and skill clearly inspired those around him, from the enemy German army that buried him with full military honors, to his mother, who went on to memorialize him across multiple countries, and finally to Emil Merkelbach, who was inspired to write a respectful letter four years after they had fought in the Great War in the Sky 100 years ago. The story of Sally Maxwell Bennett and her son Lewis comes from the Appalachian Magazine. The link is in the podcast notes. We're going to close out World War I 100 years ago this week with the storyteller and the historian, Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton. We and the Great War Channel on YouTube covered this quite a bit over this past month, so here is a great overview wrap-up of French General Robert Nivelle's disastrous June campaign by the storyteller and the historian. Greetings. This is Richard Rubin, storyteller, the author of The Last of the Doughboys, and back over there. And this is Jonathan Bratton, historian. In early April 1917, just as the United States was entering the war, French General Robert Nivelle was beginning a grand offensive against the Germans that was slated to finally break their lines and end the stalemate on the Western Front. However, the French assault on a ridge in Picardy known as the Chemin de Dame, the center of the offensive, was a disaster for the French. On the opening day of their attack, the French took 40, 
thousand casualties, more than General Nivelle had predicted for the entire offensive. The successive weeks were only slightly better, although gains were slim. After seizing the Chemandadam Ridge, the attack ground again to a halt and was called off as the French soldiers began to mutiny. And this really was about as close as the French had gotten to losing the war. I mean, even six months earlier at Verdun, while the Germans were making good or trying to make good on their threat to bleed France white, uh, there was never a sense, I think, that the French were going to give up. But in 1917, in the spring of 1917, one day after these assaults on the Chemin de Dames went so badly, uh, French troops just said no more. And this spread through the ranks, and all of a sudden you had widespread mutiny, thousands of soldiers threatening to walk away in the midst of a war. Yeah, it was really completely unprecedented. I mean, there were when you say there were whole divisions that just sort of sat down and said no more. Um, and you really can't blame them if you ever are able to go up to the Chemin de Dames and you stand on those ridge lines that, that just plunge downwards, and then you imagine the German trenches uh, on top. Um, they were it was just a complete massacre, and so you're actually shocked that any French troops were actually able to get to the top and take the German position. So the entire uh, offensive was poorly thought out um, and really not well executed. The artillery coordination was poor. And so the, the lasting effects are not only that um, you know, you've got more and more French casualties, but now you've got a French army that, as you say, is, is close to a breaking point where they're talking about executing these deserters, and, or, or mutineers, rather. In the middle of a war. In the middle of a war. Yeah. And these, these are executions that would be of thousands of troops. I mean, one of the shocking things, if you go to this place, is that the Germans had it to begin with. And the reason they had it was because the French hadn't adequately defended it. Right. Uh, the Germans had an excellent sense of history, and they knew that Napoleon had used this ridge, the Chemin de Dames, against the Prussians to devastating effect a century earlier, and that the French left it essentially unguarded in September of 1914 after the First Battle of the Marne so that the Germans could take it and that they could seize all of these subterranean chalk mines which they could use as natural bomb shelters. Um, but the other thing about this is that Nivelle really overplayed his hand. He was overconfident after Verdun. Yes, the French did not submit. They did not succumb. They were not bled white, but they got very, very close. Nivelle thought that he had the Germans on the ropes, and he didn't understand, I think, the extent to which the Germans had the French on the ropes at that same time. Uh, so this assault was a very, very bad idea. Many in the French uh, high command knew it was a bad idea, and they were only too happy, I think, to name this the Nivelle Offensive. <laughs> and, and really, um, sort of one of the, the biggest outcomes of it, um, what could have been a complete and utter disaster and a complete uh, breakdown of the French army, is saved by a fairly unlikely figure. We, we think of him as a unlikely figure now. Um, you mean Nazi collaborator, General Philippe Pétain? Uh, none other than he. But at the time, he was not yet a Nazi collaborator. At the time, he was the man who stepped in and said, you know what, we're going to change the way that we do business. We're going to establish rest camps.
camps, uh, as the Germans had been doing all through the war. We're going to rotate, uh, we're going to change the time of our troop rotations on the front lines, and really just make life bearable for the French soldiers. And he pretty much saved the day at that point. Without him, there would be no French army, really, to to uh, to fight alongside the Americans and the British and all the other allies uh, to it, the end of the war. And it was actually the second time he'd saved the day at that point, because he really was the hero of Verdun as well. It was he who put into place this system known as Noria, which was just a constant line of trucks going to and from the battle at Verdun up this road, this single road called La Voie Sacrée, or the Sacred Way, that was just beyond the reach of German guns. And without setting up this system, Noria, uh, uh, the French wouldn't have survived Verdun. So it was really the second time that he saved the day. And everybody was surprised, I think, when he was passed over uh, after the battle to lead the French army in favor of General Nivelle, who was most famous, I think, at that point for coming up with the rallying cry at Verdun, they shall not pass. And after the mutinies spread, uh, to their credit, the top brass in the French army removed Nivelle from command, sent him off to Africa where they thought he could do less damage <laughs> and put Pétain in place. And Pétain realized you can't execute all these mutineers or we won't have anybody left to fight the war. So instead, uh, he made examples of a few men and instituted these reforms that made the war more bearable uh, for the rest of them. And one of the important reforms that he made was that the French would not launch any more big offensives until the Americans could show up in force and be a big part of them. That was the storyteller Richard Rubin and the historian Jonathan Bratton talking about General Robert Nivelle. Be on the lookout for their monthly podcast, which will feature a full one-hour journey with these two great raconteurs. We put a link to their websites in the podcast notes. We've moved forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. News about the centennial and the commemoration. From the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register at www.cc.org events, here is our upcoming event pick of the week. Keith Coley's Mobile World War I Museum has a number of upcoming events this summer, including a visit to New Orleans, Dover, Delaware, and Dallas. The Mobile Museum is a traveling collection of authentic artifacts from World War I. The museum started out as a special event for seniors at retirement villages and assisted living facilities. But since then, the word has gotten out, and Coley's Mobile World War I Museum gets booked nationwide, not only in senior venues, but colleges, universities, schools, special guests of museums, national parks, air shows, and other commemorative events. You can read more about Keith Coley's Mobile World War I Museum by following the links in the podcast notes, and you can reach out to Keith if you're interested in hosting it. Meanwhile, check out the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register at www.cc.org events, all lowercase, for things that are happening in your area. And if you have an event you'd like to include in the register, look for the big red button and submit your own upcoming events. It's not only a great way of letting the World War I commemoration community know about it, but it also registers your event as a part of the National Archival Record of the World War I Centennial Commemoration. You can follow the links in the podcast notes. 
Did you ever hear of Chautauqua? The word Chautauqua is Iroquois and means two moccasins tied together. At the turn of the previous century, the term was aptly used to signify a unique American gathering that brought together entertainment and culture into far-flung regional communities with speakers and teachers and musicians, entertainers, preachers, and specialists of the day. Former U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt was quoted as saying that Chautauqua is the most American thing in America. Today, most of us know nothing about this American tradition except our next guest, who is bringing Chautauqua back to Nebraska with a World War I theme. Here to tell us about it is Jerry Meyer, historian at the Nebraska National Guard Museum. Jerry, welcome to World War I Centennial News. Thank you, Dale, for the wonderful introduction. Oh, you're very welcome. Jerry, Chautauqua is sort of like the circus coming to town without the critters and the Siamese twins. Can you tell us about the history of it? Well, I tell you, Dale, the, uh, 100 years ago here in Seward, Nebraska, we had a, a traveling troupe called the Red Path Chautauqua out of New York uh, visit here on a yearly basis. They would put up a big white circus tent, minus all the animals and critters you're talking about, and they brought culture out here. As a matter of fact, that location uh, that they set up the tent and brought in the productions was here at the exact location of the, of the modern-day Nebraska National Guard Museum, where we did a lot of our Chautauqua events 100 years later. So... Now you bring the idea back to Nebraska with the World War One theme. Can you tell us about that? You bet. The uh, the theme for this year, and this was uh, a, co a coordination between uh, Humanities Nebraska and the National Guard Museum and several other entities here, but Chautauqua 2017's theme was Legacy of a Forgotten War, World War One, And uh, we brought in a lot of uh, assets to, uh, to help make this a success. The National Guard Museum piece was we hosted a lot of the workshops that the Chautauqua presenters did, but we also brought in uh, Aviation Day. So we brought in a Newport 23 replica plane flown by Tom Martin, um, you know, to talk to pilot talks and talk with children, and, and they'll share that uh, love of aviation. Uh, we did a medical day. We did doctor talks. We brought in a, a mock World War I trench, and we had a doctor uh, and several modern doctors talk about trauma from World War I to today. And then we brought in famous World War I individuals. And our big thing for the National Guard Museum is we brought in General John Pershing, actor Dave Shuey from Pennsylvania. And that was a huge hit with not only the, the people of Seward, Nebraska, but also the state as Pershing's ties to the University of Nebraska, the Pershing Rifles, and his law degree. So, you know, we brought in a lot of, uh, of things to do. And the Nebraska Humanities brought in the Chautauquans themselves. So we had Woodrow Wilson here, W.E.B. Du Bois, Jane Adams, William Jennings Bryan, which is a favorite of Nebraska, and then Edith Wharton. So we had a lot of cast and crew uh, come in here and do presentations in the evening, workshops during the day. Uh, it was really quite uh, quite the event. We really, really enjoyed it. Jerry, it sounds like a really wonderful event. I, I'm sorry I couldn't make it out. Yeah, hey, we would have loved to see you here. You know that. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Well, Taylor, I tell you, we also had a surprise visitor. We had Susan Menegay from the Pittsburgh out here. She brought uh, Gene and Mike out here, and it, uh, it was great to see them and to kind of share some of the things that they see on a national basis. But uh, I noticed Mike uh, before somewhere in my career, and he happened to have deployed to Afghanistan with me in 2003 and four. So we had a kind of a great talk, so it's kind of neat to see people I haven't seen in years. So great event, great people. We're glad Susan can make it out here. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for your support and, you know, allowing us to uh, talk about Chautauqua. Thank you. That was Gerald D. Myers, historian at the Nebraska National Guard Museum, reviving an old American community tradition.
the Chautauqua. There are links in the podcast notes about the events in Nebraska. Now for our updates from the states. From our Centennial Partners in Ohio, Camp Sherman lies nestled on the banks of US-23, just north of the city of Chillicothe. It was one of the many Army training camps built in 1917 as we prepared to go over there. And it was, in fact, the largest World War I training camp in the nation. Camp Sherman is now a National Guard training facility, and it will be part of a nine-day commemoration in honor of its centennial and of the contribution made by all of those who served in the Great War. The commemoration will last from July 1st to the 9th and will include guided tours of the military complex where the original firing range once stood, there'll be reenactments, fireworks, live fire demonstrations, and a historical film screening. Learn more by following the link in the podcast notes. In our international report this week, we cross the Atlantic on the Queen Mary II to France to commemorate the arrival of the U.S. troops. There have been many commemoration events across France this past week, including the Queen Mary II sailing from Saint-Nazaire to New York City. Sailing alongside the Queen are four sailing crews manning the best multi-hull yachts in the world. The Queen Mary II was built solely for luxury, yet at last report she's currently in the lead, dominating the powerful trimarans for speed. This historic sailing was organized by the Mission du Centenaire, the French Commission for the World War I Centennial, with support from the French Foreign Ministry. As a celebration of Franco-American friendship over the century, all these ships are headed straight for the foot of the Statue of Liberty in New York City, a fitting testament to the two nations' alliance. Meanwhile, in Brest, France, members of the French military, including the French Navy Band, participated in an international military ceremony. Robert D'Alessandro, the chair of the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the acting secretary of the American Battle Monuments Commission, the ABMC, was on hand to represent these organizations for the special moments. The city of Brest, as we've noted in previous episodes, is where the famous Harlem Hellfighters first arrived in Europe. They left an impression on the city, most notably a legacy of jazz excellence because of the 369th Incredible Regimental Band. Fittingly, a large music festival has been organized across France to celebrate the musicians who fought in the war or created works in response to the war. Events are being held in Brest, Saint-Nazaire, Isandu, Nice, and Chemie de Dames each with their own local focus, and many incorporating remembrances of the American presence there 100 years ago. We put a number of links in the podcast notes about these events for you. Harley-Davidson is one of the most iconic American brands of all time. Like a number of other companies, World War I was a powerful shaping force for the company that built these iron horses. Anup Prakash, a Marine Corps veteran and director of U.S. marketing for Harley-Davidson, says, General John Blackjack Pershing was convinced that using new technology like motorcycles would provide great agility, ease of use, and durability in wartime. So we've had a long history since that time in serving the military. It's been a continuous link in our history. Today, 
There are veteran-founded motorcycle clubs and rides all over the country. Read more about the World War I connection to Harley-Davidson by following the link in the podcast notes. Now it's time for our Articles and Posts segment, where we explore the World War I Centennial Commission's rapidly growing website at www.1cc.org. This week in the news section, you'll find an article exploring the role of the conscientious objector during the conflict. Quakers, Mennonites, Huterites, Branderhoff, Peace and History Society scholars, and others have planned a symposium to cover the stories of these American conscientious objectors who resisted and dissented out of conscience in World War I. The conference will take place in October 2017 at the National World War I Museum in Kansas City. Read the whole story by visiting www.cc.org news or by following the links in the podcast notes. And that brings us to The Buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what have you got for us this week? Thanks, Teo. I'd like to start by thanking everyone who follows us and engages with us on Facebook. Last week, we shared the Centennial News podcast link on our Facebook page, and we saw phenomenal engagement. People had comments, stories to share, and questions to ask, so we started answering back. And the resulting conversation we were able to have on that one Facebook post was phenomenal. The post ended up having 22 comments on it, was shared 120 times, and it reached 20,000 people. We'll keep the conversation going this week and next by replying to your comments and questions on Facebook. So head over to facebook.com slash WW, the number one centennial to join in. Also from Facebook this week is a great post from The Great War 1914 to 1918, The Rage of Men. It's a page I really enjoy following for their variety of content. They post great images, though they are sometimes grisly, as well as more long form posts. This week, I wanted to share one that covers the AEF, or the American Expeditionary Force. We're talking a lot about this newly formed army on the podcast, but the details and the history of the force is so big, so intricate, and so interesting that we can't possibly cover it all here. The post shared in the podcast links is a fantastic in-depth look at the AEF, photos included, and I highly recommend you check it out if you've got a hankering for a little more detailed history. Finally this week, I wanted to share one final story for PTSD Awareness Month as June draws to a close. The American Experience, which aired the documentary The Great War on PBS earlier this year, has been releasing various World War I-themed short videos and snippets from the documentary on its social media. The most recent one is titled A Soldier's Shell Shock and outlines the experiences of Ralph John, an American soldier who fought in the Battle of the Merzargon. He suffered incredible trauma after that experience. You should watch the video and more of the American Experiences videos by following the link and the podcast notes. Thank you, Catherine. And that's all for World War I Centennial News for this week. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog and his post about the anti-war resistance movement, Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton, and their Storyteller and the Historian wrap-up segment on General Robert Nivelle. Jerry Meyer, historian at the Nebraska National Guard Museum and his Chautauqua events. Catherine Akey, the Commission's social media director and also the line producer for the show. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. 
on this 4th of July weekend. We want to send a thank you to everyone who has ever served in any capacity to create, maintain, protect, and sustain this dynamic and quite remarkable country of ours. As you celebrate the birth of our nation, we ask you to take just a moment between the burgers and the beer, between the big game and the picnic, and just reflect how much of your world around you today was forged 100 years ago. It's not the forgotten war. It's the war that changed your world. I also want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. They've been the foundation for our organization, conversation, education, and commemoration of the centennial. Thank you, Colonel. The World War I Centennial News Podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn. On iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn, search for World War I Centennial News. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thanks again for joining us this week. Have a wonderful 4th of July holiday, and so long.